Mark 14, turn there with me. And as we see this act of incredible generosity and worship, we're going to see it through three lenses. The first is a sacrificial act of worship. And then secondly, how other people viewed it as a scandalous act of worship. And then finally, we're going to see Jesus' perspective as it being a sacred act of worship. But let's start with verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. So here we see what appears to be an incredibly sacrificial act of love and adoration of Jesus. The woman mentioned here, John is clear when he tells this account, is Mary, the sister of Martha. You may remember them from the Gospel of Luke. I think it's chapter 10 where Jesus is in their home and Martha's real busy doing the virtuous woman thing. Mary chooses just to sit at the feet of Jesus and Jesus says Mary's chosen the better thing. A little lesson on worship. Busyness is not next to godliness. Mary and Martha were the sisters of Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead. Bethany was their hometown. During the final week of Jesus' life, Jesus is headquartering out of Bethany. The scenes that unfold in Jerusalem take place as he goes down into Jerusalem to have these various encounters. And then he returns to Bethany, most likely is staying with Mary and Martha. And here he's at the home of Simon the leper. Now, chances are he's not a leper now because he'd be out away from the village. He'd be wearing strips of cloth, walking around saying, unclean, unclean. So most likely he had been a leper and Jesus healed him, but now he's stuck with a nickname. How would you like it if like the one thing Jesus had to most forgive or heal you of became your new name? But it would be a great mark of God's grace. Simon the leper, who is no longer a leper. He's at his home. And Mary comes. Nard, pure nard. Doesn't sound very attractive, does it? But it actually was the most precious of perfumes in that day. It came from the foothills of the Himalayas. And it was very, very costly. Later on, we see that those who watch Mary's act estimate that this one pint of nard was worth about a year's labor in what's called day wages, our equivalent to minimum wage, a year's labor. Most often they mixed nard with olive oil to stretch it, but this was the real deal. And a pint, that's a lot. Chances are Mary saved a long time for this. It may have been her most precious and prized possession, and it was in an alabaster jar. I want to show you a picture of an alabaster jar from that period of time. It's not unlike modern perfume jars. This is cut from a solid piece of alabaster, and the neck inside is probably much more narrow. And that's because real perfume, how much do you need? 
a little here and a little there. I don't have a lot of experience with that, but so I've heard. And we all know when people overdo it a little bit. We all know. Really, this nard, Mary had a lifetime supply. And then it says she broke the jar. Now, go back to that picture. Chances are Mary broke it below that neck to make a wider opening. And why did she do that? So that she could, as it says, pour the perfume. You don't don't pour perfume. Who pours perfume? She broke it so that she could generously use every drop of it. In our reading, she pours it on his head. John lets us know that she also poured it on Jesus' feet. It's an act of anointing, which we'll explore. But think about that. What Mary used was perhaps her most precious possession. She did not offer some of it, but every single drop of it, and it was therefore an extravagant expression of love and honor. But that's not how the people who watched it saw it. What we look back and understand as sacrificial, they saw as scandalous. We pick up the story at verse 4. Listen to the language that Mark uses here. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Now, I just want to be clear about who these people are. These are not the Pharisees and religious leaders who, verse 1, says at this time are looking to betray Jesus. They're brought into the scene because at the end of this event, we see Judas leaving this encounter. Somehow, what we see right here is the tipping point for Judas when he says, that's it, I've had enough. I'm going to get what I can out of this. These are Jesus' disciples, his close companions, these are good people, and yet they look at this act of extravagance, and they are offended by it. But let's go through the phrases. Some were indignant. What Mary meant is an act of love. They saw as something very, very wrong, indignant. Why this waste? According to John, it was Judas who voiced this complaint on behalf of everyone, which would make sense. What Mary did was not a good thing at all, but a waste of a precious resource in the most unwise and emotional way you could picture. What this means is that the people watching would be what we might refer to as true Yankees. (laughs) Am I wrong? Aren't we proud in New England for being penny pinchers? Right? What a waste. Think of all the stuff we could have used it for. It could have been used to feed the poor. Who can argue with that? And there's so many out there. We, we could spend everything we have to feed the poor. Why spend something on such an emotional, spontaneous, extravagant, and it's gone. She poured it all out. And then she even broke the bottle, so we can't even get the deposit for it. (laughs) 
What a waste. And then it says they rebuked her harshly, right in front of Jesus. It's as though they, they thought, well, Jesus talked about feeding the poor. That's, that's a Jesus thing. So they take it upon themselves to educate Mary. Poor Mary, she's always getting put in her place by Martha and then, then by Jesus' followers. They, they rebuked her harshly. And I, I'm thinking whether we like it or not, we're probably more like the others in the room than Mary. We can't imagine such a, a wasteful expenditure on something that is just, just an extravagant outpouring of love to Jesus. That's un-American and maybe unchristian in our way of thinking, but that's not Jesus' way of looking at it. See, what they saw as a scandal Jesus sees as something very sacred. Let's read his response. Verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. How, how precious does Jesus see this spontaneous act, this wasteful act? He immortalizes it as part of the greatest story to ever be told. He starts by saying, she has done a beautiful thing. Jesus saw it not as wrong, but as wonderful, a beautiful act of worship. And then he goes on and he says, the poor will always be with you. I, I feel like we need to hang here a little bit because this is a little confusing. Is Jesus being callous? Is he just dismissing the idea of the poor? Actually, no. You see, in the rabbinic tradition, the tradition in which Jesus taught, rabbis would often invoke a whole Old Testament text by saying the first line of that text. For instance, on the cross, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One way to look at that is that Jesus felt forsaken by God, but actually he's invoking the first line in the 22nd Psalm, which is a messianic prophetic Psalm that describes in detail the process of crucifixion centuries before it was even invented. So think about that. So Jesus on the cross is teaching. He's saying, you go read it and you'll see that's what I'm doing right here. In the same way, when Jesus says, the poor will always be with you, he's actually quoting Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. Let's say it together. There will always be poor people in the land, so I command you to be open-handed toward those who are poor and needy. So Jesus actually is affirming that we are indeed to feed and care for the poor. And that, that would be far more consistent with his own teaching, wouldn't it? Until our Lord returns, and until 
the kingdom of God is established on earth and there's a new heaven and a new earth, until that, there will never not be needy people around us. And so the point there is that that mission is a constant. Not only can you go and take care of them, Scripture's clear, we should. (laughs) But then Jesus goes on and he says, but you will not always have me. Now, I want to read what I've written in my notes. There are seasons of opportunity when extravagant acts of worship are available to us. And we should not waste the opportunity. There are seasons in our life, in human history and in our individual lives, where opportunities for extravagant acts of worship become available to us. And we can't miss the opportunity. And Jesus is saying, this is one of those moments. There will always be life and ministry as usual. But you will not always have me in this moment. And those moments call for something extraordinary. He goes on and says, she did what she could. Now, if we didn't know that she had just given a whole year's worth of precious perfume to Jesus and we heard, she's done what she could, we might think it's like the widow's might. She did what she could. But they have just witnessed her giving what is most likely her most precious possession in its entirety to Jesus. Here's what I want to suggest. Why did Mary take this thing that she may have saved her whole life for to have that was more precious than a year's worth of work, break the bottle, and completely dispense it in an act of extravagant worship of Jesus Christ? Why did Mary do it? Because she could. And it makes us wonder, what can we do that we're not thinking that we could? What could we do? And here's the thing, this this act that seems so wasteful and is so misunderstood by even good people actually has a God-given meaning to it that Mary may have not even understood because he goes on and says, she has actually prepared me for my burial. Now, there's something interesting in this scene. Nard was used in the anointing of kings. And Mary actually maybe knows it or doesn't, anoints Jesus in the way in which kings are anointed. Jesus had just days before been welcomed into Jerusalem as the Messiah, as the king, but no leaders anointed him then. In fact, leaders sought to destroy him. And so think about this. God sees fit to make sure that his son, who is the true king of kings, was anointed as such. But how did it happen? And where did it happen? And by whom? Where is Jesus anointed? Is he anointed on the temple Is he anointed in the palace? No. Whose home was it? A leper. Oh, that's why the name. Yeah. Those who were the outcasts. And who did the anointing? A woman. The marginalized of that culture. Oh, what a picture. What a picture of what Jesus' kingdom was to be about. 
but not just as a king, but as a dying savior. Nard was also among the precious perfumes that were blended in to anoint a body for burial. To mostly just take care of the stench is all, all it was. And, and Jesus pointed to his death by Mary. He says, she's anointing me for my burial. I, I just think about this. Just think about this. In the same way Mary took this precious thing, she would never be able to replace it, this precious thing, and she broke it, and it was spilled out as an act of worship to Jesus. Just days later, God's most precious possession, his son, would be broken, and his blood would be spilled out as the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever, ever known. And that's why he goes on and he says, look, what she has done (laughs) will be told in honor of her as often as the gospel is told. And, and, And there's so much we could explore here, but since this is about worship, I want you to understand that God sees value in acts of worship When we see scandal, when we see waste and extravagance, God sees, if it's prompted by the Holy Spirit, God sees something that in eternity will be borne out, right? So let's wrestle with where, if you're like me, the the struggle is, the elephant in the room. We're in a city where there are so many needs, We could expend our entire budget to meet those needs. How in the world, how in the world could Jesus honestly expect that in our economy, and even then, things weren't easy in Jerusalem. I mean, they were an occupied territory. How in that place and in our place can we justify such extravagant acts that serve no other purpose except to demonstrate our love for God. How can we justify that when at the same time there are such needs around us? And how is it that Jesus had no problem with that? Here is the difference. We don't view resources in the way that Jesus does, and we don't even in the church. We operate from a perspective of scarcity. For most of us, it's painful to give anything back to God. And we assume God understands because things are tough. It's tight. In the church, we're so utilitarian. We want to use every penny to make sure we're doing something worthwhile. We're driven by this idea of controlling it. For Jesus... There is plenty for all of it. And you know why Jesus could be confident in that? Because it all comes from his heavenly father. It just happens to pass through our pockets on the way. But it all comes from his heavenly father. And Jesus knows there's plenty. There's plenty to feed everybody. And there's also plenty for outrageous acts of love and adoration. Jesus has no problem with that. Go back to the Old Testament. 
It's very clear that Israel was to feed every single hungry person. In fact, God says, if you follow my laws, there will not be a hungry person among you. In other words, they were supposed to feed everybody who was hungry. Imagine if we could pull that off in this city. But at the same time, what was the primary metal used in the temple? Gold. How much of it? Lots. And how much money was expended towards the wardrobe of the priests? The jewels, the umen and the tumen. How much? Yeah, lots. You see my point? God provides, not us. If we can't imagine generosity in our worship of God and generosity to those who need God, the problem isn't God. The problem is us. And that's why Jesus spent so much time talking about resources. Some of you are thinking, how did you turn a sermon on worship into a sermon on giving? It is a sermon on worship, but here's the crux of the matter. Jesus said, we cannot worship God and money. We serve one or the other. And here's the problem for many of us. We're trying to serve God by serving money. For some of you, I'm opening up all sorts of questions. And to that, I say, great. You should struggle with this. You should wrestle with this. And you should ask yourself, what could I do? And may Jesus also be able to say of me, he did what he could. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, right? Don't worry for tomorrow. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Oh, man. Once again, we run into one of these stumbling blocks. Can it just be about joyful singing? Can it just be about what we experienced here? Can't we call that great worship? Partially. Partially. But it's in giving everything. In the same way, Mary's bottle was broken and spilled out and Christ's life was broken and spilled out, he calls us to be broken before him and to be completely spilled out for his glory and honor. Everything I have, everything I do for his glory. And he's trustworthy. He's willing to supply whatever we need to be true worshipers. Do you believe that? I don't know what that looks like. I'm not suggesting you show up with pure nard next week. I just think this points at a condition of our heart that may keep us from really being able to worship God with abandon. And I think it's worth uh, putting that out there as we wrap this up. And so ends our series on worship. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for what we've learned. We've been humbled. We confess that we think so much about worship as what we receive from it. And what we've learned is it is in giving to you that we receive our deepest need. Our souls are filled and satisfied by you because we are fulfilling what you made us to be. True worshipers, Father, so grateful for that. We end this series being reminded that there are things that are great competitors for our worship of you. That we have our own idols 
And we confess, Father, money, things, stuff are probably your biggest competitor in our lives. Because we can touch those. We can see the balance of our checking account. We can hold on to the things we possess. It takes faith to hold on to you more strongly. And Father, may we do that. May it be said of this congregation and us as individuals, when our lives are measured, that we did what we could. And may we understand that what we could do is everything. In Jesus' name, amen.